Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Jesus came right on time. He was anointed as Messiah exactly as the Bible said he would be. God has given us abundant, credible evidence for Christ's divinity so that when he invites us to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the decision is a very easy one to make. So if he wasn't a liar and if he wasn't a lunatic, then there is no other option. It must be that he was and is who he claimed to be, the long-expected Messiah, God incarnate, the Savior of the world and Lord of all. If you type into Google the word Christmas, you'll come up with 2,620,000,000 results. If you type the letters J-E-S-U-S -S in, within a split second, you'll have over 1.1 billion results. If you search the online bookstore of Kindle for Jesus, you'll come back with over 60,000 books. Now, if you were to wade through this sea of search results, you'd find a variety of clashing views as to who Jesus was. Some results, like the Bible, would portray him as God, but the majority of them would portray Jesus as only a good and moral man or just a wise teacher or prophet. But as we'll see together in this message, a man who made the claims that Jesus made about himself cannot be a good prophet or a moral teacher. For the thinker, these actually aren't even an option. If you're joining us for the first time in this series, go back and check out the first two messages. Powerful. And they'll set the foundation for what we will cover right now. For those who've been with us, you've seen some amazing Old Testament prophecies that Sharissa and Lyle have walked us through so far. The entire purpose and focus of those Old Testament prophecies is that the coming Messiah would not just be a man, but that he would also fully be God. Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This babe born in a manger of Bethlehem's stable is called the Everlasting Father. Micah 5 verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, and remember, there were two Bethlehems in Israel, and here God specifies which one Jesus would be born in. It goes on. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, or from eternity. In other words, in order to be the Savior of the world, the one, the Messiah, would have to be God Himself in human flesh without a beginning, but having existed forever. Now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around something or someone with no beginning. And that's probably because everything we see around us had a beginning. There was a point before which I existed, before you existed. Almost anyone older than you and I can remember that time. Your car, your house, your school, they all had a starting point. Earlier this year, I discovered a new sport. Freeboarding. It's been around for about 10 years, but it was new to me. Freeboarding is amazing. I'm still trying to convince my wife of that, but it is. 
It's like snowboarding, which I love and hardly ever get to do anymore, except instead of on the snow, it's on paved roads. And yes, of course, this means that you have to be all padded up in case you fall. But Sharissa and I found a new neighborhood being created on the top of a hill near our home. And the roads up to it were perfect for learning. Empty lots, open space, and virtually no traffic. But within just a few months, houses seemed to pop up out of the ground like plants. You know, we remember well the time before these homes existed. But for God, He remembers the time before everything existed. The trees outside, the birds that fly, all life on planet Earth, and even the planet itself had a starting point. In fact, everything in existence other than God Himself was brought into existence by Him. So since everything in the natural world had a starting point, it's no wonder that it's hard for us to wrap our puny human minds around a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who had no beginning and have always existed. But this is exactly the picture that the Bible paints. And as we'll see in a moment, this was the claim of Jesus Himself. When you read the Gospels, it's impossible to miss this. Jesus claimed that He was God. And we're going to look at just seven verses together on this, and I'll let you be the judge. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Bible says, The Jews sought all the more to kill Him, because He not only broke the Sabbath, that is, according to their rules, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said something to the Jewish leaders that he fully knew would be understood as him claiming equality with God the Father. Next verse, John 8, verse 46. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We're going to come back to this one later on. John 8, 58, a few verses later, Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Christ was here actually claiming to be the great self-existent God, the I am that I am, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush centuries before, who predated Abraham himself. And we know that they understood him to mean this because the very next verse, verse 59, says that they took up stones to try to stone him, to kill him with. John 10, next verse, verses 30 to 33. He said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. No explanation needed for this one. Just three more verses. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Just before he proved it when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus was claiming to be the source and the originator of life. The Old Testament scriptures that Jesus so clearly believed and based his life upon very clearly state that God alone is the author of life. Next, John 20, verse 28. Doubting Thomas, as he's often called, when he saw Jesus' resurrected body and the wounds in his hands and his side and saw that it was Jesus, he proclaimed, my Lord and my God. So Jesus was worshipped as God and he accepted the worship. Last verse of all, Luke 5 verse 20, Jesus told a crippled man, let down through the roof of a house that he was in, your sins are forgiven you. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Clearly, by claiming to forgive sins, Jesus was claiming to be God. So friends, unequivocally, without question, Jesus claimed to be God, the eternally existent one in human flesh. You may have noticed that all but one of our verses came out of the Gospel of John. Now, John actually skips the Christmas story in his Gospel. So you may be thinking, Justin, why are we reading from the Gospel of John? This is a Christmas series. After the other Gospels had been written, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, heresies or false teachings uh, that were inconsistent with the rest of the Scriptures had arisen about the divinity of Christ. And they claimed that Jesus was simply a man. And so John wrote this gospel at the request of the faithful Christians. And the gospel of John gives us crystal clarity about the divinity of Christ. Through John, the Holy Spirit makes abundantly clear to us that not only is Jesus the one, but he knew and he said that he was the one, that he was God incarnate. Of all four of the gospels, John has the most of these powerful statements like we read. Now these claims of Jesus create an interesting dilemma or trilemma. In the mid-19th century, the Scottish Christian preacher called Rabbi John Duncan formulated what he had called a trilemma, and this was in the late 1850s. His argument was that, and I quote, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or secondly, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or third and finally, he was divine. And he said, there is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable, which means inescapable. Duncan wasn't the first Christian to point out this trilemma, and he wouldn't be the last. In the 1940s, C.S. Lewis made a, this trilemma popular again by advantageously adding amazing alliteration and saying that Christ must either be liar, lunatic, or Lord. Published later in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Wow, those are some pretty strong words. Why was Lewis so confident that Jesus couldn't be just a great human teacher? How can he be so sure that there are only three options for who Jesus really was? Let me explain the logic of this so-called trilemma. As we saw in those Bible verses together, Jesus repeatedly claimed to be God. He was either correct and he was God, or he was incorrect, right? With me so far. If he was incorrect and he was not God, then there are really only two possibilities. First, that he knew he wasn't God, or second of all, that he didn't know that he wasn't God. First, if he knew he wasn't God and intentionally deceived people, it would mean that he was a liar. Secondly, if he did not know that his claims about divinity were wrong, he actually believed himself to be God, but was not. This would mean that he was out of his mind, a lunatic. And last of all, if neither of those are true, it must be correct that he was and is 
who he claimed to be, the God of all eternity, the Lord. So friends, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. So who was this baby born in Bethlehem's manger? Let's take a look at these three possibilities one by one. First option, that Jesus was not God and he knew it. This would make him a liar. If Jesus was a liar, he also would have been a hypocrite because he taught his followers to be honest, whatever the cost. And beyond being a liar and a hypocrite, this would have made Jesus a fool as well because his claims to be God led to his crucifixion and he could have easily just backed out of these claims in order to save himself at the last minute. Think about this. Billions of people over the last 2,000 years have put their faith in Jesus as their God and Savior. But if he knew that he was not God and was a liar, then his claim is one of the worst lies in all of history. And if that is the case, then nothing he said should be trusted. And he shouldn't be counted as a great moral teacher, but a moral monster. Many people die for false causes that they believe to be true. But think about it. No one would be prepared to die for something that they knew was a lie. Yet Jesus died a torturously painful death to be the savior of the world. Obviously, he believed his own claims. Listen to the words of historian Philip Schaff. He penned these powerful words worth thinking upon in his book, The Person of Christ. He says this, How in the name of logic, common sense, and experience could an imposter that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to end the purest and noblest character known in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality? How could he have conceived and carried out a plan of unparalleled beneficence, moral magnitude, and sublimity, and sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudices of his people and age? Powerful. Friends, clearly the idea that Jesus was a hypocritical liar and that nothing he said is of any value is ridiculous. Even Jesus' strongest critics today don't make this claim. They try to say, well, he's a good teacher. I agree with a lot of what he said, but he was not God. So this dismisses the first of our three options, that he was a liar. Simple logic, when weighing the evidence, suggests that Jesus could not have been intentionally deceiving people as a liar. The next possibility, Jesus claimed that he was God uh, if it was not true and he did not know that it was not true but fully believed them would mean that he was out of his mind, delusional and a lunatic. Now considering all that we know of him, it's hard to imagine that Jesus was mentally deranged. I mean, think about it. He spoke some of the most profound words ever recorded and these words have set free countless millions of people held in the chains of addiction. His words have healed the souls of the emotionally broken. And just think about the gospel accounts. Does Jesus ever do anything that would make the people around him think that he was insane? Not at all. Philip Schaff put it well when he said, Is such an intellect clear as the sky, bracing as the mountain air, sharp and penetrating as a sword, thoroughly healthy and vigorous, always ready and always self-possessed? Is that kind of an intellect liable to a radical and most serious delusion concerning his own character and mission? Preposterous imagination, Schaff says. Theologian Clark Pinnock asks, was he deluded about his greatness, a paranoid and unintentional deceiver, a schizophrenic? 
Again, the skill and depth of his teaching support the case only for his total mental soundness. If only we were as sane as he. Now check out what some psychologists have actually said on this note. Psychologist Gary R. Collins said, All in all, I just don't see signs that Jesus was suffering from any known mental illness. He was much healthier than anyone else I know, including me. And I love this from Dr. J.T. Fisher, another psychologist. He said, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would not you would have an awkward, incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. Wow, this psychologist is saying Jesus' longest recorded sermon stands head and shoulders above the very best of all that psychologists, psychiatrists, and even poets can offer. In his book, History of European Morals, William Lecky, who was one of England's most noted historians and also one of the greatest and most bitter opponents of organized Christianity, he said that he had to admit, the simple record of these three short years of active life, that is Jesus' life, has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Wow. Even those who are opposed to Jesus recognize the power of his life and of his teachings. And beyond not being out of his mind, the words of Jesus have restored sanity to many who have lost theirs. In this powerful book, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell shares a story of how a California university student told him that his psychology professor told them this in class one day. He said, all that I have to do is pick up the Bible and read portions of Christ's teaching to many of my patients. That's all the counseling that they need. End quote. Truly, the words of Christ can restore the broken mind. In Christ, we see the most amazing life ever lived upon earth. Jesus wrote no books, yet there is more written about him than any other person in history. He built no buildings, yet the world's architectural masterpieces have been built for his praise. Jesus painted no pictures, yet Raphael and Michelangelo, Da Vinci, all received their inspiration from him. He wrote no poetry, but he was the inspiration for Dante, Milton, and thousands of the world's greatest poets. Jesus composed no music, yet Haydn, Handel, and Bach wrote the world's most beautiful music in his praise. Christ could not have been a liar and lived such a holy life and been willing to die for his claims while believing them to be false. Jesus could not have been a lunatic and had such a positive and life-changing influence not only on those who met him face to face, but on millions of people in the centuries to follow. So if he wasn't a liar and if he wasn't a lunatic, then there is no other option. It must be that he was and is who he claimed to be, the long-expected Messiah, God incarnate, the Savior of the world and Lord of all. When the first missionaries went to Japan, stories told that a young Japanese man who wanted to learn English was given the Gospel of John to translate into his native tongue. In a short time, he became very restless and agitated. At last, he burst out with the question, who is this man about whom I have been reading, this Jesus? 
You call him a man, but he must be God. There are no in-betweens here, friends. He is either God or he isn't. You can't have Jesus as a great moral example if he, and by extension his followers, are the perpetrators of the greatest lie in history. You can't have Jesus as a great teacher if he's one of the most insane people that has ever lived. You either dismiss him as liar or a lunatic, or you worship him as Lord. In the words of C.S. Lewis, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And what did this once agnostic C.S. Lewis conclude? He said, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Friends, there are 256 names given in the Bible for Jesus. And I suppose that this is because he's infinitely beyond all that one name could express. And because no matter who you are and what you do, Jesus is relevant to you. To the artist, he's the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. And to the builder, he's the sure foundation. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. And to the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the biologist, he's the source of life. To the farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. And to the sculptor, he's the living stone. To the lawyer, he's the lawgiver and advocate. And to the oppressed, he is the righteous judge. To the orphan, he's the father of the fatherless. To the news anchor, he's the good news of the gospel. To the servant, he is the servant of servants. To the educator, he's the great teacher. And to the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the philosopher, he's the wisdom of God. And to the theologian, he's the author and finisher of our faith. To the traveler, he's the living way. To the toiler, he's the giver of rest. To the sinner, he's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And to every believer, he is the incarnate, eternal God, my Savior, my Redeemer my king. You may ask, why does it matter? The divinity of Christ, that is the belief that he is God, is not just some small thing. In fact, it's a life and death matter. Romans 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. That is, every human being who has ever lived is doomed to eternal destruction. But, the verse goes on, praise God that it does, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus actually told us this himself, John 8 verse 24, we said we'd come back to this verse, where he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Friends, if you open up your Bible, every single English translation gets it wrong and they actually say that Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But that word he is not in the original. Jesus was just about to say a few verses later uh, that I am, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, in this verse, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am that self-existent eternal God, you will experience the wages of sin and you'll die in your sins. The only way to avoid this eternal death penalty is to accept Jesus' death 
in place of ours, that He might grant us the gift of eternal life. How? Because the God of all eternity, the life giver, became a helpless human baby 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve so that you and I, who don't deserve life, can live eternally with Him. The purpose of Bethlehem's manger was Calvary's cross. And through the cross, God performs a great exchange. He took our rottenness and offers us His goodness. He took our sin and He gives us His righteousness. He took our perversity and He gives us His purity. He takes our weakness, but He gives us His strength. He took our shame and He gives us His glory. Someone put it so powerfully when they said this, He became poor that we might be rich. He was born that we might be born again. He became a servant that we might become sons. He was hungry that we might be fed. He was thirsty that we might be satisfied. He was stripped so that we might be clothed. He was forsaken so that He could promise us He would never leave us or forsake us. He was a man of sorrows that we might have joy. He was bound so that we might go free. He was made sin that we might be made righteous. He was born in a barn that we could live in a mansion. He came down so that we might go up. He was homeless on earth that we might have a home in heaven. He died that we might live forever. Friends, maybe you've seen the logic. This message has made sense to you. You've determined that Jesus couldn't have been a liar. He clearly wasn't a lunatic and therefore he must be God incarnate. The question, the most important question is, will you let him be Lord of your life? In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is the question that he's asking us as well. To acknowledge with our mind that Jesus is God is a good start, but it's not enough. James says in the epistle of James, it says that even the demons believe and tremble. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's not enough to believe something about him, but we must believe in him. The most important question is, will you accept him as master and as Lord of your life? If you do, he'll carry out that great exchange for you personally. And if you want to accept him as Lord of your life, we would love if you just let us know. Send us a text message, reply in the comments section below, and call or call the number on your screen and let us know that you've accepted Christ as Lord of your life. There is literally no better decision that you could ever make. Bethlehem's babe, born in a barn, will come again one day soon, not as a humble baby seen by a few, but as King of kings and Lord of lords, and every eye will see. Friends, in order for Christ to be your Lord and my Lord on that day when He returns, we must accept Him as Lord today and right now.